The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So very excited and honored, really, to be here, to be able to spend some time with you, Lene, as part of the podcast and hear your story and your voice in terms of your experience in this pandemic. And I understand that you were in the role of a scribe in a a health system in the Southeast when it started. And I think people would be interested to hear what actually is a scribe. So a medical scribe is someone that goes in with the provider. It could be a doctor or a PA, and they just document everything that's happening from the story of what you're complaining about, the physical exam findings. And then after we leave the room, we go through the chart and create a differential diagnosis for the patient. I was at one location until October, and then I recently transferred to another location two months ago. So that's really interesting. I think you're the first person in a scribe role that we've talked with, and it's actually kind of a new role in healthcare. A lot of people don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people might think, well, it's just writing down stuff. But as you said, it's also synthesizing information and it puts you right in the middle of the clinical encounter, right? And you were in the emergency room? Yes, in both locations at the emergency department. It's also a a role that I know a lot of people get involved in when they're interested in the healthcare field to see what it's like, because you basically get a seat at the table. Do you have other interests as well in healthcare? Yes. So I am taking on this profession to in preparation for PA school. So for PA school, we need a certain amount of direct patient care hours. So, and this fell under one of the one of the many roles that goes to direct patient hours. So I took this on and really love it so far. It's a great learning experience. That's fantastic. And PA, so Physician's Assistant School, and you probably had to, there's a fair amount of schooling and studying that goes into that. And I think Mm -hmm. also you mentioned that, are you studying to be an EMT as well? Yes, I am getting in 
a routine of that. And then by end of January, I think we will start classes. Everything's been a little pushed back with like fingerprints and physicals and everything just because of the pandemic. So it takes a little bit longer for all the paperwork and everything to go through. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about it, not only because a lot of people may not know about it, but also I think a lot of people think about healthcare as, well, I'm just going to be a social worker or I'm going to be a nurse or, yeah. and, and it really isn't that sort of solitary, a, you know, or a discreet a way of getting in. A lot of times people are like, well, I'm interested in healthcare. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. It actually, I think, makes for a well-rounded uh, healthcare person to have done that. So Thanks. That's very interesting. So you were at this hospital, you were a scribe in the emergency room, and I think you had started in February or something. Yes, I started probably around middle of February, and I was there until October. So when you first start, you have about two weeks of training with another scribe that is there, just so you can get the feel of the speed and the routine that, and also the hospital for two weeks, I was with another scribe. He was trained here and she was training me. And then probably around the beginning of March is when I started to be by myself. Wow. So I don't think you could have timed it any closer <laughs> to the COVID uh, virus. So what was that like? I mean, it wasn't like you'd been doing this for two years and it right. literally started. What was that like? It was hectic, first and foremost. It started off with a bunch of people coming in with flu-like symptoms. So a lot of my charts started to look the same, Mm -hmm. which was a little, it was frustrating because I wasn't seeing as much as I wanted to um, in the beginning. And then I will say once it was a confirmed pandemic, they started to send anyone with any type of flu-like symptom or I think COVID was confirmed by then. Um, they created a tent and anyone who had any type of symptom that related to that, they sent Mm -hmm. them immediately to the tent to just get testing. But because of short staffing, the tent got canceled pretty soon because there was no one to really do all the swaps um, for everyone that was coming in. And a lot of people were coming in because they were, they were anxious. They just wanted to know to help themselves. They thought they were around exposure or they were around exposure. So there's a lot of people coming in. So, you know, you paint this picture of uh, in the beginning, you start hearing about stuff, maybe even on the news, but you're not sure what it is. And then there's some realization that, you know, this virus is going to hit here and they put up a tent, which actually gives the the impression of like kind of literally being on the front lines, right, of a battle. Mm-hmm. And obviously that was in some ways to try to keep people safe. But then you said the tent didn't last and you had to come back. What was your experience of that? So it died down once the tent started and there sometimes would not be patients. I believe most of my ships at the first location was eight hours. And sometimes I wouldn't see someone for at least five. And then one person will trickle in because they were social distancing and trying to go on a run by themselves and ended up tripping and slicing their leg open on a branch or something. So they would come in. But then once the tent closed down, everyone started to come back in and everything. And it just got, it got a little bit more chaotic again. So it was coming in waves. It sounds like bursts of people coming in and then it slows down and bursts of people coming Mm -hmm. in. And, you know, given that you were new to the role in healthcare in a sense, I mean, what was your experience of, did you think Jesus isn't uh, safe or did you feel safe or did you feel like we knew what we were doing or we didn't, what was your experience? I don't think I ever felt that we knew what we were doing. I think that we had, at least the location I was at, we had a small 
grip on the situation, but I thought that that was only one location out of the entire, at least just the U.S., even though the whole world was being affected. That's just one location out of the one state that I was in. And in one state that I was in, there were how many locations that didn't have a grip on it and everything. So it kind of just started building. My thoughts just kept building and building and building. And yeah. What do you mean with thoughts? It was mostly like, what is really going to happen? Mm-hmm. When will we go back to normal? It was one day that all of a sudden we had to wear a mask and we had to get our temperature checked at the beginning as we walked into work. And if we didn't have an ID or anything, we couldn't go to work. I actually left my ID at home one time and they wouldn't let me in. But I was like, I promise I work here. Um, and I had to go grab the PA to confirm that I worked here. But normally before all that, it was even the people that do know that you work there, they wouldn't let you in. So it was kind of like everyone was just freaking out. So it made it was kind of like a domino effect. Everyone was freaking out. So then I started freaking out. Then that made other people freak out mm-hmm. about the whole situation. So that also paints a picture of, you know, just I guess we could call it anxiety on the rise. And when you say that you felt like you guys had a small grip on it, I mean, what was it like interacting with the leadership and the senior clinicians? Was that helpful? Was it not helpful? You know, because you have a really important perspective as someone new. What was your impression of what works and what doesn't? What was your uh, experience of leadership? There were a lot of people I was able to talk to about if I had questions, but there were some people that I didn't feel that I could talk to if I had questions, just because they were just closed off a little bit more. And then also, it was crazy because a lot of medical people will say that COVID doesn't really exist. Yeah, I remember when we <laughs> talked about that, that struck a chord for, for me. I don't know if there were regional issues, you know, differences around that being, uh, I'm located in uh, Connecticut. I was interested because obviously they're across the country, there've been differing responses to mm-hmm. the, the virus. And so what was that like? Tell us more about what you mean about that, you know, getting confusing message from medical personnel. Like I said, some people will say that COVID ex- doesn't exist. Then you're like, well, the whole world is being affected by this thing called COVID. So it has to exist. Whether it's not what the news is picturing it as or the government's picturing it as, like there's something out there that's existing that is causing all this, causing the downfall of the world. So that was very frustrating to hear. Um, you mean people in the medical system? Yes, in the medical system. In all um, different disciplines, even including doctors? Mm-hmm. Nurses, we- doctors. I'm not really sure if I can pinpoint PAs that would say it, but I've heard doctors say it. I've heard nurses say it for sure. What was that like for you? Again, as somebody kind of new to healthcare, this is something I'm interested in. I'm trying this, I'm trying that. I'm open-minded. What was your reaction to hearing doctors or other you know medical professionals with uh, mixed messages about it? It was It was frustrating, mostly because I looked up to them and I want to be their colleague one day and It just, as a PA, like something I focus on is having that teamwork because PAs have to work under a doctor. And so to hear that, it made me think that what if I was the PA like under that doctor that day and I had a conflicting issue, um, would we be able to discuss it? Was he like being, he or she being 100% serious? So I really thought about the teamwork aspect with that. I mean, that's a great way to think about it. I actually... uh... 
have, would have a similar thought about, you know, as you're thinking about the medical profession, the function of a team, one way is to measure the function of a team is can people on the front lines or in lower ranks, so to speak, mm-hmm. speak up and speak truth and openly to the people that lead them and, and how to create that kind of a culture. You said frustrated. I mean, when you heard the mixed messages, and I was wondering, because as I was listening to you, I was thinking if I was you, if I were you, I would wonder about safety, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. if healthcare providers are not entirely sure the virus is something to be believed, did it affect your feeling worried about, is this place safe? Are we doing all the masking that we need to, that sort of thing? I definitely thought about safety um, throughout this time, especially because at times masks were not always accessible. It's, even in the beginning, they weren't accessible by, we didn't have to wear them at one point when the pandemic first started and it was confirmed, but we weren't we weren't really taking it as serious as we needed to, including myself. I mm-hmm. went to the grocery store. We didn't need to wear masks and everything. And so that part, and then also not having the supply. So sometimes like patients will come in with their masks, but for some reason they like accidentally break off or rip, but we can't find masks in the hospital to replace it. Or sometimes when we would come in, they only had kids masks. And if you saw me, I don't have a kid's face, so it wouldn't fit. Uh-huh. <laughs> so supply and also, like you said, are people taking it seriously? Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know, going back to when you said your thoughts were building, was there a point where you actually crossed the line, you're like, oh, I'm worried now. So I think it started maybe in May. And then we went to during and I either in April or in May, I can't remember for exact time dates or anything, but we ended up going like basically virtual. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is when cases were really, really rising and mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to go into the patient rooms. However, we was st- we still had to go into the hospital. And mm-hmm. we were still literally just down the hall from patient's room. So my whole frustration was if I still have to go into the hospital, I'm still being exposed. Mm-hmm. So one, if I'm already here, I might as well just go to the patient's room because I'm down the hall from them. I passed them in the hallway as I was going to the destination that we were supposed to go to. And it was basically in the observation unit. So there were people in there that had to be there overnight and everything. Some people don't have their doors closed. And so, yeah, that was one of the most frustrating things. I think you're you're really doing a great job explaining, use the word frustration, but (laughs) uh, it's confusion. It's, I guess we could call it mixed signals, Mm -hmm. mixed messages. Like I get it's safer for me to be virtual, but then why do I have to come into a hospital where there's a lot of people and you're not alone in that. I'm, I know across the country, people trying to figure this out. Well, this seems like a good idea, but this, I don't understand this other part. Yeah, of it. it just wasn't fully blending. Mm-hmm. It was like halfway there in my mind. And did you start to see people getting, you know, even like your colleagues beginning to come down with it? There were nurses that I saw have it. There were a couple of PAs that had it, some doctors. As far as the scribes, I don't think anyone got it, but their people were exposed to it that had to go get tested and they couldn't return to work until their test became not negative. And so there's in some ways two, two things and they're like, so on the, it's a big deal to see people getting it. 
around you. I mean, like I, here's somebody I'm working in this team and there's some people getting it. I mean, Mm -hmm. was that a, a, a important moment? You know, what was that like? Once again, frustrating. (laughs) I have to find another synonym. But uh, there were two aspects again to it. So when nurses or doctors or PAs got sick, they had to quarantine for 14 days and then they were able to return to work, but they did not need a negative test to return. So I'm working with all three of those professions and I'm being around them. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, like, are they not able to pass it on to me? Am I having exposure right now? But then when scribes got it, we all used the same equipment. Uh-huh. And so it wasn't really communicated as well as it needed to be. Sometimes when people did get exposure and they had to get a test in order to come back to work. And so you're not being as careful as you can be with the equipment that we're all using, not wiping it down extra and everything. So hearing that in one particular moment for me, hearing that a couple of scribes, I think it was three scribes, when they were exposed and they had to leave work, it was like, why didn't no one tell us? Why didn't no one make this like a mass thing so we can all be prepared for this and protect ourselves? Were people thinking, you know, is this have something to do with we're low on the totem pole or something? I honestly think it was embarrassment that they were embarrassed to be exposed to it. And if they became positive, it was going to create a more of an embarrassment thing for them. So they didn't really want to put it out to everyone mm-hmm. so they could protect themselves as well as they can. And then I think you had also said something about it was different who, if they were out quarantining, got paid and who didn't get paid. Oh, yeah. So from my understanding, from the conversations that I've heard and also been a part of, doctors, PAs, nurses got compensated if they had to miss two weeks of work to quarantine, but scribes did not. So it was also that if you were exposed, do I really want to miss out two weeks of work and I have no other occupation? And mm-hmm. I know at other locations that this was a thing too, that the nurses and doctors and PAs didn't get the compensation. But at the one location that I started at, the nurses, doctors, and PAs did get compensated. Actually, you bring up a really interesting part of the narrative of you know people on the front lines that I think the general public wouldn't necessarily know, which is if everybody has the same rule about getting, you have to quarantine for 14 days, some people may get paid, some people may not. How does right. that work? Or like you said in back in May when you went virtual, some roles can't be virtual, mm-hmm. right? So like, how does that work? Who gets yeah. to be virtual? You know, you even said, well, you were virtual, but you had to come to the hospital. I mean, there's a whole bucket of stuff like that. That's just really confusing stuff. I think you're doing a great job explaining that. I know it It started getting, I mean, you, you started getting worried and then I know it started becoming stressful. You know, mm-hmm. what, is it right that you would visit your, your family on a regular basis and then you had to stop doing that? Yes. Yeah, so because I was not an undergraduate anymore, I had more time on my hands. So I would try and take a weekend off where I can come back home to Maryland to visit my family. And that helped a lot with my mental health and my happiness, uh, just being around my family because I lived further away. And so with COVID happening, I was scared that I would expose them if I possibly had COVID and I was asymptomatic. And so I had to stop coming to see them. And then I think I didn't see them for about three or four months it's so painful, frankly, to hear, and we hear that things like this, yeah. that because you're somebody that is cares and is sensitive to others and puts mm-hmm. others before yourself, I mean, you know, in a sense, 
that you made a decision that would be protective of other people that then took away one of your, you said, mental health things, you know? Yes. When I did think about coming home, I'm, I think I came home one time and it was for my birthday in May, the end of May. And I came home and I told my parents, I said, do not leave the house for two weeks, please. Because I have a grandmother on my mother and father's side. And I both, my great grandmothers on my mother and father's side are also still living there elderly and frail. And I was just like, please don't go around them. My grandmother's a breast cancer survivor and my other two great grandmothers, they're just older. So they were, they were all high risk and I just didn't want mm. them to get exposed. And then it all falls down on me. So again, you know, you're concerned about them and about others and how are they doing? How did they do by the way? They're all doing good. Sadly, yeah. I lost my great grandmother in October um, mm. on my mother's side, but it was just due to old age and not COVID, but she lived a great, great life. And so here you are, and I think you're living alone, right? Just me and my dog. Yeah, no, that's important. What's your dog's name, by the way? Gizmo. <laughs> Gizmo. And so living alone, you know, you now you can't do that thing that really settles your mental health. And so then what, what happens next in terms of your own mental health? I really didn't know. I was getting up. I was going to work. I was coming back home to my one-bedroom apartment, my 600-square-foot box, and just really just being in the bed. And only time I would get up is when I ordered food. I didn't really have much motivation just because of all the stress and overwhelmment was going on and anxiety and depression was, it was kind of just all sinking in. So your, your energy's going down, your motivation's going mm -hmm. down, your get up and go is going down. And then did you reach a kind of a point? Yes. So it was the weekend before or the week of Father's Day, I reached my breaking point in the mm -hmm. sense I was supposed to go home for Father's Day, but I had no motivation to drive home. I think I I think I took off and a couple months ago, like I took this time off so I can be home for my father. Father's Day was on Sunday and I believe I went to the hospital on Tuesday. I was supposed wow. to leave Thursday. So back to your father for a sec. So that's a big deal. So yeah. you know, you had not been back home for a while. You were going to be able to go back home and you literally, what did it feel like? You literally felt like, I, I, just, I just don't have the energy. I like driving is one of my, one of the things I love to do, especially for long road trips. Um, I just play my music, play podcasts, play whatever I want. I just sing my heart out and just drive. And for me to tell my parents that I don't have the motivation to drive, that really hurt me. That's a um, bulb. Yeah. And I, I knew that I needed to get help and I was supposed to go in on Wednesday, but I knew that I couldn't go in. Mm -hmm. I just, I was at my, my empty cup, <laughs> uh -huh. if you'll say, but so I went to the hospital on Tuesday and mm -hmm. I called out of work on Wednesday and my parents came down Tuesday night. They so weren't you... allowed to see me though, because of COVID. And I think Wednesday one person was the last my mom came up and we so you, FaceTimed my dad. <laughs> you went into the emergency room seeking help for your mental health. Yes. And, and what was that experience like? It was scary. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. And only reason I knew to do that is because of my scribe position, because wow. I've seen other people do it. And honestly, 
if I wasn't a scribe and I was somehow going through this or something and I didn't know, like you could go to the emergency room to get that help. I don't know what would have happened. Okay. Timeout. Cause that like, so you've said two really important things in the last couple minutes that I just want to underline, you know, for people that are listening, because one of the reasons we're doing the podcast is because you've had an experience where you did notice what was going on with you and you mm-hmm. did reach out for help. And for every person that does that, I don't know how many people don't do it, right? So the first thing is this light bulb moment, I call it, when, because people are like, how do I know, you know, that I need to reach (laughs) out? And and you said so well, I mean, I was going to go home, which I love to do. I was going to drive, which I love to do. And I literally didn't have the energy. Like, that's like a light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. So then you, you took that light bulb and then you get in, and interesting that you kind of said, like, if I hadn't been inscribed, if I didn't really know the drill, if I didn't know that other people did this and it's okay, I maybe wouldn't have done it. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you did go in. Was it helpful? It was helpful for the time being. So, yeah, so I went to the same, yeah, same system, but a different department. I didn't want anyone to really recognize me. That from- was important. Yeah, um, if I went to the hospital that I did work at. But I did end up getting a psych eval the next day. And mm-hmm. they set me up with a psychiatrist um, outside like? of the hospital. It was good. I really connected with the psychiatrist. However, he set me up with a therapist that I did not really connect with. Can we spend a couple minutes on that? Like, is another yeah. thing people are interested in is, like, what makes a difference? So what was it about the psychiatrist that you connected with? Honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it was age. So mm-hmm. also the psychiatrist was a PA. So I felt mm-hmm. connected to him because I was like, wow, I want to be you one day. Mm-hmm. So to see you doing this and helping me, it made me feel warm inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and he was, he was younger. So I really felt connected with him and he was yep. energetic. He wasn't monotoned and so yep. why are you want to be here today? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about that? <laughs> oh, I felt, I felt great. I think mm-hmm. that finding a connection with your psychiatrist and your therapist is a huge, huge mm-hmm. part. And honestly, why I didn't have a therapist before the pandemic is because the previous therapist I had, I didn't have a connection with. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what was it about this one that you referred to that you didn't connect? So... The one that I did end up seeing, I met with her, I believe, three times. Mm-hmm. And the first time I told her what had happened, that I work in the hospital, my battery has been very, very low. I'm trying to get motivated. However, I'm also, even though my battery was empty, a lot of my friends did not know it was empty. So mm. I was still trying to help them with their problems, even though I didn't, I wasn't taking care of myself. So I was trying to emphasize my sessions on how to create healthy boundaries for myself. But she kind of wanted to redirect the sessions and talk about other things. And I Uh just wanted to talk about the boundaries for right now, especially because I was just getting to know her and I wanted to try and create that relationship with her. But she wasn't really navigating the way I wanted to. Yeah. She was older. So I didn't really feel the connection I did with the younger psychiatrist. That's so interesting, Lene, because I literally was just working with a patient here and we did the same thing. You know, this person wanted to work on X 
And we said, well, that's really interesting, but let's work on why. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, this person went along with it for a while. And then we ended up, you know, finally listening to them yeah. <laughs> and, and, and had a different therapist who was, who was more interested in the, in the X. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, how did it, why did we do that? You know, and I, <laughs> so like, you know, we get into these ruts in our field, so it's good to get feedback. You know, one of the things that I will sometimes say to, to folks, cause I'm a psychiatrist when I'm thinking <laughs> about referring, what kind of person would you think you'd like? Uh, cause people are different. You would, you like somebody that talks a lot or doesn't yeah. talk, you know, mm-hmm. cause it can go either way older, younger, you know, man, woman, you know, and actually people do often have some thoughts about that. So, you know, knowing that ahead of time, whoever's referring you, uh, you can give a head start. Mm -hmm. But then I think you got, you did a lot of work on yourself though. I think you were saying, what was it that you did? I don't know if it was after I started seeing the therapist or during the time. Mm-hmm. However, it was definitely after I went to the hospitals that I put out like a poll on social media and I just asked like, what do you do when your mental health is bad, basically? Wow, that's um, interesting. And a lot of people, this is like a lot of people respond. I didn't, I expected like two people to respond and be like, oh, like I do this, but it was probably around like 30 people that responded. And it made me feel that one, I'm not alone. And two, Mm -hmm. like, there are many, many things I could try. And when I talk to other people about mental health, it's kind of like a trial and error. Like, everything's not going to work for everyone. So Mm -hmm. I just went through the list and found what worked for me and what didn't work for me. I picked up a couple of new hobbies. I paint a lot during these times. Um, I, on a daily basis, like, I love to look at paintings. And like I say, I want Mm -hmm. to paint. But I can only paint when I need to, like, declutter from the world yeah that's the only time i can paint (laughs) that's interesting so like if you had had a therapist that was really into that like you know Mm -hmm. they're art therapists you know i mean that would be a better fit by the way did race or color fit into i mean i actually haven't asked you your race but uh, you have have darker skin than i do (laughs) and you know did that play a role uh, in your uh, experience of the, the therapist or the psychiatrist so i personally did not mind. So I am an African-American and I have mostly seen only Caucasian therapists. Mm -hmm. My first ever therapist in high school, she was an African-American woman and I didn't connect with her at all, Mm -hmm. but it never affected me that the people that I was seeing weren't my same skin color. However, Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of people that do feel that way. Yep. And maybe if I was talking about things like the social equality and um, like the George Floyd things, I think Mm -hmm. that would have played a a bigger part into it. But just the fact that I was talking about myself and trying to get my well-being up, I I didn't think that it mattered that much to me. It's a great answer. And again, any one of these things, people Mm -hmm. might have a strong opinion about it or they might not. One of the challenges, you know, for folks that are looking for clinicians of color is that, we don't have nearly enough clinicians of color in the workforce, especially Mm -hmm. psychiatrists. Only 2% of psychiatrists are Mm African-American and psychologists a little bit better than that, but it's really something that we need to work on. Absolutely need to work on. Did you say something about you also journaled? 
Yes, I started journaling. The only thing with journaling is that because I wanted to write so much, my hand would start cramping. Oh, <laughs> so, <a> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I just type a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would do is in my phone, I just go on my notes. And because of my age, I text a lot. So mm-hmm. I just text or I don't text, but I write myself a note and my notepad on my phone. I just text whatever I'm thinking. And mm-hmm. then sometimes I keep them. Sometimes I delete them. That's a great idea. Very, uh, you know, a number of your solutions, you kind of created them and I hadn't heard of them before. So how are you doing now? Where are you? How's your mental health? I'm doing very well right now. I am, I moved home um, due to my great grandmother's passing. And then I just wanted to move to a different location um, from the hospital that I was working with. So I transferred to another hospital close to home mm-hmm. and living in my parents' basement, I asked them, I was, that was the one thing that I tried to negotiate them with. I have my childhood bedroom at, upstairs, but I still wanted a sense of like a safe haven for me. So yeah. I asked, could I move to the basement? There's an extra room down there. So I just wanted my own space where I can go away from everyone and just be in my own space. And I not have my sister across the hall, like in hearing her conversations and everything. <laughs> That's great. I mean, again, that's like you used the word boundary before, but that's like being good at boundaries. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm also being good at reaching out and asking for help, but putting a boundary like I, I'd like to do it this way. And are you still interested in, uh, I mean, medicine, I was going to say, because, um, you know, somebody might hear all the stuff we just talked about and say, well, I mean, are you giving up on the medical field because of uh, some of these experiences or where are you relative to your interest in, in the field? I have not given up. I'm applying next cycle for PA school, but there was a time where I was really contemplating and I was, mm-hmm. I was saying to myself, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to sacrifice seeing my family again, not seeing my family? Do I really want to sacrifice not seeing my friends if this were to happen? Or if even if we never got back to normal, that was kind of how my mind was thinking. Um, do I want to really sacrifice the little things that mean a lot to me. You know, I'm, I'm first of all, I, you know, I urge you to do whatever you want to do, but I'm, I'm really glad that you're still <laughs> excited about, you know, the field and because I think you, you're going to be great. And in the podcast, we've talked with people at different stages of their career. And we've heard stories of people at different stages of their career that because of the stress of the ongoing stress, now, I don't mm-hmm. know, nine months, that people that have been around for a while. Some of them have left. Some people in their mid-career have left. Some people, the people that we've ended up talking with are, have been energized about staying in the field, mm-hmm. mostly, you know, for the mm-hmm. most part. What I, I think you shine a light on is people. So you're part of the work, the workforce that's going to keep people like me healthy. You know, you're, <laughs> you're coming in now. So what is, what is it like for people coming in you know, who we need, we need Mm -hmm. really amazing people like you to be part of the the system. And how many people might we be, you know, losing because they're like, wow, I didn't know it was going to be like this. So I think, A, thank you for kind of shining a light on that. And B, I am really glad that you're pursuing um, the PA. But I, I would just like to really take a minute to thank you, Lene, for 
coming, sharing your story, your strong voice, your, you know, really articulate experience so that people can hear it and learn from it. And uh, I really do wish you well, and I'm thankful that you're pursuing your PA. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. This show is engineered and edited by Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512